Hey everybody, Tom Panneries, host of In Country. Uh, the following episode contains some explicit language, so listener discretion is advised. Now, on with the show. In Country, a podcast covering Marvel Comics' The Nom presents In Country. Welcome to episode 50 of In Country, a podcast that is taking a complete look at Marvel Comics, The Nom, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Panneries. It is the 50th episode of the show, and that means I am literally halfway through this podcast, which as I said will cover all 87 stories that constitute The Nom as well as specials featuring the Vietnam War and other cultural contexts, whether that be film, television, or literature. Last time around, I covered issue number 44 of the series, which was the midpoint of the comics. So this time I'm taking a break from comic book coverage to talk about a novel and a movie about the Vietnam War. That novel and movie? In Country. Yes, you heard that right. This is the inception of podcasts right now. Okay, in all seriousness, the name of the podcast being In Country and the existence of a novel and a movie by the same name is actually just a coincidence. In Country is a phrase that soldiers used during the Vietnam War to say that they were in Vietnam, just like as someone in World War I would talk about being at the front. Conversely, soldiers would refer to returning to the United States or going back home as going back to the world. So that's where I got the title for the podcast. I didn't even know this movie existed until about a month or two ago when I was doing some research for another episode of another podcast, and honestly, I can't remember what, and came across this movie on uh, the Internet Movie Database. I did a little bit of digging, and I discovered that the film, which came out in 1989, was written was directed by Norman Jewison, and stars Bruce Willis, Emily Lloyd, and Joan Allen, and was based on a novel that came out in 1984, which was written by Bobby Ann Mason. The film was available through Netflix on DVD, and again, do not get rid of your DVD subscription, kids. And the book is still in print and was available at my local library. So I checked it out, read it, and watched the film, and I'm going to spend this entire episode talking about it for you. The song I've chosen for this episode, by the way, should be pretty recognizable to anyone who was alive during the 1980s and listened to Bruce Springsteen, and that is I'm on Fire. It's the last song on side one of The Boss's huge 1984 album, Born in the USA, and it's used quite a number of times during the film. The book references the album, especially its title track, but I actually plan on doing something more with Born in the USA somewhere down the line. As for I'm on Fire, Springsteen writes in his 1998 book, Songs, I'm on Fire came to me one night in the studio when I was goofing around with the Johnny Cash and the Tennessee Three rhythm. 
The song is very, very Johnny Cash, and you can definitely tell. In fact, Cash himself would eventually cover it. Uh, a number of other artists have as well. Uh, notably, Tori Amos uh, did a cover version on a VH1 special back in the 90s. Personally, it took me a number of years to come around to this song. Uh, I got my first copy of Born in the USA on cassette in about 1985 or 1986, and I repeatedly listened to the title song as well as most of Side 2, which was uh, No Surrender, Bobby Jean, I'm Going Down, Glory Days, Dancing in the Dark in My Hometown. I'm on Fire was the song I'd fast forward through so I could get to the end of Side 1 and flip the tape so that I could listen to No Surrender because that was my favorite song on the album. Uh, it's still one of my favorite Fritz Springsteen songs, to be honest with you. But in the years since then, you know, when I was eight, nine years old, uh, I've come to appreciate more of the boss's music beyond the bombastic anthems. And honestly, I've come around to think that Tunnel of Love, uh, which is the album that came out in 87, is actually uh, one of his most underrated albums. But as for I'm on Fire, I- I've seen that song for what it is. It's this really great song about passion and desire and longing, which uh, does factor quite a bit into the story, the themes of the story contained within In Country. So I'm going to get to that story, starting with Bobby M. Meeson's novel, right after this. Calabac, Desaad, it is I, Darkseid. I command you to listen to the Who's Who podcast. Uncover the powers and weaknesses of the Super Friends so that I may destroy them. Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Ultra Boy and Mr. Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, Dittrick, and Arisia and Woody Weeks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC Who's Who. Who's Who, the definitive podcast of the DC Universe. Available monthly at Aquaman Shrine, Firestorm Fan, and on iTunes and Stitcher as part of the Fire and Water podcast. Bobby Ann Mason was born in 1940 in Mayfield, Kentucky, and sets her debut novel, In Country, in the fictional town of Hopewell which is a stand-in for Mayfield, although, coincidentally, there is an actual Hopewell, Kentucky. It's just outside of Louisville. The town itself is a very small, poor town in the Deep South, and Mason flavors it with the characters you'd expect to see in such a place. Our main character for the novel is Samantha Sam Hughes, a recent high school graduate living in Hopewell. Her father died in Vietnam when she was a baby, and her mother, after years of various boyfriends, moved to Lexington after meeting her new husband. She left behind Sam, as a teenager, as well as her uncle Emmett, who is an unemployed Vietnam veteran who has PTSD and shows signs of poisoning from Agent Orange. The bulk of the novel is found inside a framing device of a trip that Sam and Emmett are taking with her grandmother to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. We open while they are on the road, driving Sam's VW Bug, which is not faring well on the trip, and they have to stop at a service station in Maryland, about 100 miles outside of Washington, because the transmission has problems. They've clearly been working one another's nerves, but it serves to give us some insight as to who each of them is and where they are eventually going. When part one ends and part two opens, we're in Hopewell several weeks earlier. 
Much of what we see in part two is about Sam's growing dissatisfaction with the day-to-day life in Hopewell, as well as her curiosity as to who her father was and what the Vietnam War was really like. At this point, she's only read about it in history books, which seems to come off as very cold and clinical as opposed to personal. Emmett, who is in the war, doesn't talk about it very much, although it certainly has affected him. He constantly gets terrible headaches. He's suffering. He's terrified during thunderstorms because they're clearly triggering some sort of flashbacks. And Irene, Sam's mother, does not want to talk about her father, uh, her, her you know, former husband, at all. And that's mainly because Irene and Dwayne, which is the name of Sam's father, were married for all of a month when Dwayne headed off to war. In fact, he died before Sam was even born. Over the course of the second part of the novel, we get most of Irene's backstory, which really amounts to her raising Sam alone or with Emmett, as he lived with them having at least one memorable boyfriend, this hippie named Bob, and then meeting her new husband, Larry, and moving to Lexington. It's important to note that Sam's about 17, 18 years old in the novel. Irene's 36, 37. She's she's maybe a year or two younger than I am at the moment because she had Sam right out of high school. So the the second marriage to Larry and, and, and her actually having a baby throughout the whole novel is not unrealistic. You forget how young you are when you have a child that young. This this moving to Lexington, by the way, is a source of much consternation for both Irene's parents and Dwayne's parents. Dwayne's parents are, are country folk. They are farmers, and they have this sort of attitude. And everybody actually seems to have this sort of attitude about Irene of like, oh, you always thought you were too good for us, and then you left. And that does pop up every once in a while. Sam's resentful. Sam is 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 concerned because I because when Irene left her for Lexington, she left Sam alone at the house with Emmett. And Sam feels a responsibility to take care of Emmett on some level. Now, high school's over. Sam's been accepted into both the University of Kentucky and Murray State. Murray State is local, but Irene really wants her to go to UK. She says, you know, um, and even though Sam is more content to just go to Murray State, live at home, work at the burger joint. Part of this is because she feels an ob- obligation to take care of Emmett, as I mentioned. Because he doesn't work. He, he actually owes the government 500 bucks because years before he had gone to Murray State, he dropped out, but they kept sending him checks and he never returned them. So he basically pocketed the money and then the VA realized that and now he owes them 500 bucks, but it's not enough to take him to court over. So they just keep adding interest. Sam Emmett doesn't really do much. He, he spends most of his time hanging out uh, with fellow vets like Tom, Earl, Pete, and Jim all of whom seem to have their own individual damage from the war. And he works on random projects around the house. Uh, there's a focus of the fact that he has like his routine every day, where like he goes to McDonald's every day and meets the guys for coffee and, and certain things. And then um, he'll get kind of obsessed with certain things that he has to take care of. In fact, most of the novel he um, has a project that consumes him is that there's a leak in the basement and he spends an enormous amount of time digging around the foundation to find that leak and he eventually patches it but there's this sense of I don't know that something is off about him um, you know and he doesn't he doesn't go get a job every time they mention that every time Sam mentions you know you can go to this job you go to this job he's like he's like forget that you know I'm not going to do that this isn't how Emmett's always been, though. When he got back from the war, he was a lot more active. In fact, he spent time protesting. He went as far as to hang a Viet Cong flag from the courthouse tower. But that was in the early 70s. And by 1984, it's obvious that the fire has gone out. And he's become 
more or less one of the eccentrics in Hopewell. He's given up. He's let whatever PTSD, whatever mental problems he has, start to consume him, start to run him. Sam is convinced, by the way, that Emmett, who has these constant constant headaches and has, by the way, nasty, nasty, nasty skin condition, horrible, horrible acne. She's convinced this is the result of exposure to Agent Orange. And Emmett just refuses to get checked out. Uh, and a lot of the other vets share the same attitude. They're like, well, even if it is, don't expect the government to do anything about it. And Emmett does see a doctor at one point, but the doctor's just kind of like... You just got to take care, better care of yourself. Like everybody kind of blows off this Agent Orange issue. Sam keeps pushing it. And she really does keep pushing him to have more of a life. And she wants him to date this one woman named Anita. And and it's this, this vibrancy that Sam has is central to her character. She is a teenage girl in 1984. She loves Springsteen. She loves classic rock. She really wants her own car. She has a boyfriend named Lonnie. He was a big-time high school basketball star. And it seems, at least at the beginning of this novel, that Sam is down, headed down this road of marrying Lonnie, having his kids, both of them living in Hopewell, maybe her having a job at first, but eventually not having to have the job because she's got the kids. But she's not that simple. She's not that vapid. And one of the first ways we see that is not just her concern for Emmett, but her seemingly unending curiosity about her father and the war. This curiosity is what eventually opens her up to a larger world and provides the catalyst for what will be major changes in her life. As she begins to really dig into the war and her father's life, Sam begins to spend more time around Emmett and his veteran friends, and, well, they indulge her curiosity. This eventually turns into an infatuation for her. She becomes very, very interested in Emmett's friend, Tom. And one night after a Vietnam veterans dance where Emmett and Nita seems like they've hooked up, uh, Tom's been putting whiskey in her Coke all night because he's like, hey, you know, I can sneak you some, some, some booze. She gets a little bit plastered and they go back to her place and, well, they don't have sex because as he reveals, he's impotent. He has been impotent ever since he returned from the war. And she's she's like hopeful. She wants to be with this guy. She has this infatuation with him. And, and we can break it down as a daddy issue or or because she just doesn't see herself with Lonnie, who at this point is just off at like some huge weekend bachelor party at a lake or whatever. She sees something more mature in Tom or whatever. And he... He does not reciprocate. He He's cold to her afterward. He eventually tells her that she's better off with some of her own age. And it's a statement that's probably correct, but it's no less hurtful for the young woman. It doesn't cause her, though, to run back to Lonnie. This failed romance with Tom or whatever it was, and then watching her best friend Dawn discover she's pregnant and going from freaking out to like happy about being 18 pregnant and about to move in with her boyfriend helps Sam realize that Hopewell is not where she needs to be. And before they head off to D.C., they stay at her mother's for a night, and she tells her mother, I'm coming to live with you in Lexington. I'm going to go to Kentucky. Where I think that it's so subtly, it's not so subtly and subtly given that 
if not for her father being killed in Nam, Irene would have been married to Dwayne and raising Sam. It was like, you know, Irene's trying to get her to go to UK because it's a way of breaking the cycle that she sees Sam perpetuating, if that makes sense. And discovering about the war is doing that for Sam as well. Finding out more about her father grows in importance because it's something that she's kind of really interested in in the beginning and then it just gets more and more important to her as the novel goes on. Probably perhaps as a way for her to escape the everyday problems of the friends and family surrounding her. Sam finds all of the letters her father wrote to her mother and then she heads to the farm where her father's parents live to retrieve anything they might have. This is an important scene for this whole I have to get out of Hopewell thing anyway because she kind of looks around and and sees this sort of like bumpkin couple with the daughter who's got the kid and it's this just she's like this is these people live like this she's like I don't want to live like this I don't want this to be me so she grabs the diary uh, that he wrote and she she heads out she goes to the mall and sits down at the mall and uh, reads it and she's horrified she's horrified by all the things he was writing about it's dead friends, finding rotting corpses of VC, a number of other very, very graphic things. And even though it's war, you expect that on some level, she may not have been expecting it. Sam, not knowing what to do with herself after reading that, decides to take off. And she writes a note to Emmett that reads, You think you can get away with everything because you're a VN vet, but you can't. On the table is a diary my daddy kept. Mama gave it to me. Is that what it was like over there? If it was, then you can just forget about me. Don't try to find me. You're on your own now. Goodbye, Sam. So in her anger, she she heads out. She leaves the house behind. She packs some things up. And she decides to do is not head to Lexington to see her mother like she was going to. But head to a local swamp with some provisions. And it's a way of her experiencing what she'd been reading about. In fact, when Emmett finds her the next morning, she tells him that she's been out humping the boonies. And he gives her this lecture about how she'll never know what it was like. And that's where she just kind of turns the table on him and demands that she actually, he actually talk to her. And I'm going to read this. It's about three and a half pages of the novel. It's the very last few pages of part two. Where Emmett, after all this time of avoiding the topic and living with his eccentricities and and all of his various uh, mental states, finally opens up about his experience in the war. Are you gonna, going to talk, Emmett? Can you tell me about it? Do the way Hawkeye did when he told them about the baby on that bus. By the way, um, the two of them, Emmett watches MASH, like, unendingly. And uh, that's like a big thing that he and Sam have together. They watch MASH together all the time. So, so that, that's where that reference, that, that reference to Hawkeye is. His memories lied to him. But he got better when he could reach down and get the right memories. Sam was practically yelling at him. She was frantic. Emmett said, There ain't no way to tell it. No point. You can't tell it all. Dwayne didn't begin to tell it all. Just tell one thing. Okay, one thing. One thing at a time will be all right. Emmett lit a cigarette and started slowly, but then he talked faster and faster as though we were going to pour out everything after all. He said, There was this patrol I was on and we didn't have enough guys. 
We were too close together and this landmine blew us sky high. We was too close. We had already lost a bunch and we freaked out and huddled together, which you should never do, so we were scrambling to an LZ to meet the chopper. And first we hit this mine and then this grenade and came out of nowhere. And I played like I was dead and I was underneath this big guy about to smother me. The NVA poked around and decided we were all dead and they left and I laid there about nine hours and I heard that chopper come and go, but it was too far away and didn't spot me. I was too scared to signal because the enemy was there. I could hear him. They shot at the chopper. What do you think of that? For hours then, until the next day, I was all by myself except for dead bodies. The smell of warm blood and the jungle heat like soup coming to a boil. Oh, that was awful. They got the radio guy and the radio was smashed. I couldn't use it. I was petrified and I thought I could hear them for a long time. That sounds familiar. I saw something like that in a movie on TV. Sam was shaking, scared. I know the one you're thinking about. The movie where the camp got overrun and the guy had to hide in that tunnel. This is completely different. It really happened, he said, dragging on his cigarette. That smell, the smell of death, was everywhere all the time. Even when you were eating, it was like you were eating death. I heard somebody in that documentary we saw say that, Sam said. Well, it was true. I wasn't the only one who noticed it. Dwayne smelled it. He probably liked it. Oh, shit fire, Sam. We were out there trying to survive. It felt good when you got even. You came out here like a little kid running away from home for spite. Now, didn't it feel good? That's why you weren't afraid, because it felt good to worry me half to death. Sam said, If you ran away when you were little, and you think it's childish to run out here, don't you think you do the same thing? Don't you think it's childish to do what you do, the way you hide and won't get a job and won't have a girlfriend? Anita's a real pretty woman. It just kills me that you won't go with her. Emmett's head fell forward with sobs. He cried. Sam hadn't seen him cry like that. The sobs grew louder. He tried to talk and he couldn't. He couldn't even smoke a cigarette. Don't talk, she said. He kept crying, his head down, long, throaty sobs, heaving helplessly. Sam let him cry. She heard him say, Anita... She was afraid. Now at last. She went into the woods to pee, and when he got when she got back, he was still crying. He sounded exactly like a screech owl. She touched his shoulder, and he shoved her, her hand away and kept crying. Louder now, as though now that they were out in the woods, and it was broad daylight, and there were no people he could just let loose. His cry grew louder, as loud as the wail of a peacock. She watched in awe. In his diary, her father seemed to whimper, but Emmett's sorrow was full-blown, as though it had grown over the years into something monstrous and fantastic. His cigarette had burned down, and he dropped it over the railing. They walked back to the car. Sam sat in the car, and Emmett, still crying, sat on the hood. His bulk made the car shake with his sobs. Sam reached in her backpack and wormed out a granola bar. She resisted the temptation to turn on the car radio. An old song stranded in the jungle went through her mind. A flash from the past, a golden oldie. It would be ironic if the car wouldn't start. But Coward's Pond was beginning to seem like home. She and Emmett could stay out here. Emmett's ability to repair things would come in handy. He could rig them up a lean-to. He could dig them a foxhole. It still made her angry that she couldn't dig a foxhole. That woman Mondale nominated could probably dig one. She left the car door open. Emmett hung on the door and bent down to speak to her through the window. He said, You ran off. When you ran off, I thought you were dead. 
No, I wasn't dead. What made you think that? I thought you'd left me. I thought you must have gone off to die. I was afraid you'd kill yourself. Why would you think that? So many kids these days are doing it. On the news the other day, those kids over in Carlisle County that made the suicide pact, that shook me up. I wouldn't do that, Sam said. But how was I to know? You were gone, and I didn't know what might have happened to you. I thought you'd get hurt. It was like being left by myself and all my buddies dead. I had to find you. Thank you. She wadded up the granola wrapper and squeezed it in her hand. She said, You've done something like that before, Emmett. When you went to Vietnam, you went for Mom's sake. And mine. He nodded thoughtfully. He said, It wasn't what you wanted. Was it? It wasn't what Irene wanted. Then she got stuck with me because of what I did for her. Ain't life stupid? Fuck a duck. Get in, Emmett, she said reaching to open the door on the passenger side. No, I ain't finished. His face was twisted in pain and his pimples glistened with tears. He said, There's something wrong with me. I'm damaged. It's like something in the center of my heart is gone and I can't get it back. You know when you cut down a tree sometimes and it's diseased in the middle? I never cut down a tree. Well, imagine it. Yeah, but what you're saying is you don't care about anybody, but you cared enough about me to come out here. And you cared about Mom enough to go over there. But you don't understand. Let me explain. This is what I do. I work on staying together one day at a time. There's no room for anything else. It takes all my energy. Emmett, don't you want to get married and have a family like other people? Don't you want to do something with your life? He sobbed again. I want to be a father, but I can't. The closest I can come is with you, and I failed. I should have never let you go so wild. I should have taken care of you. You cared? She said. You felt something for me coming out here. She felt weak. Now her knees felt wobbly. She got out of the car and shut the door. I was afraid, he said. Come here, I want to show you something. He held her to the boardwalk, and they looked out over the swamp. He pointed to a snake sunning on a log. That sucker's a cottonmouth. I wish that bird would come. You know the reason I want to see that bird? This is a reference to earlier in the novel where he kept looking for an egret. Not really. If you can think about something about like birds, you can get outside of yourself and it doesn't hurt as much. That's the whole idea. That's the whole challenge for the human race. Think about that. Put, on, put your thinking cap on, Sam. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. But I can barely get to the point where I can be a self to get out of. Sam picked up a big hunk of fungus off a stump and sniffed it. It smelled dead. Emmett said, I came out here to save you, but maybe I can't. Maybe you have to find yourself. Fuck, you can't learn from the past. The main thing you learn from history is that you can't learn from history. That's what history is. Emmett flung a hand toward the black water beside the boardwalk. See those little minnows? It looks like they've got one eye on top of their heads. They're called topwaters. They're good for a pond. Catfish womp them up. See that dead tree? It's a woodpecker hole up there. But a wood duck would build a nest there. How do you know all that? I've watched them. There are things you can figure out. But most things you can't. He waved at the dark swamp. There are some things you can never figure out. He turned and walked ahead of her, walking fast up the path from the boardwalk. She followed. He entered a path into the woods and walked faster. Poison ivy curled around his shoes. 
From the back, he looked like an old peasant woman hugging a baby. Sam watched as he disappeared into the woods. He seemed to float away, above the poison ivy, like a pond skimmer, beautiful in, in his flight. The third part of the novel is where our travelers, Sam, showed up at Mama and Grandpa's house and grabbed Mama because she thought it would be important that they she say goodbye to her son, arrive at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. They look up Dwayne's name in the, in the directory and find it on one of the larger panels of the wall. Sam and her grandmother want to touch his name, so they borrow a workman's ladder. And here's what Sam experiences, which is the very last page or so of the actual novel. Sam climbs the ladder until she is eye-level with her father's name. She feels funny touching it, scratching on a rock, writing, something for future archaeologists to puzzle over, clues to a language. Look this way, Sam, Mama says. I want to take your picture. I want to get you and its name and the flowers in together if I can. The name won't show up, Sam says. Smile. How can I smile? She's crying. Mama backs up and snaps two pictures. Sam feels her face looking blank. Up on the ladder, she feels so tall, like a spindly weed that is sprouting up out of this diamond-bright seam of hard earth. She sees Emmett at the directory, probably searching for his buddy's names. She touches her father's name again. All I can see here is my reflection, Mama says when Sam comes down the ladder. I hope his name shows up and your face was all shadow. Wait here a minute, Sam says, turning away her ears from Mama. She hurries to the directory on the east side. Emmett isn't there anymore. She sees him striding along the wall looking for a certain panel. Nearby, a group of Marines is keeping a vigil for the POWs and MIAs. A double row of flags is planted in the dirt alongside their table. One of the Marines walks by with a poster. You are an American. Your voice can make a difference. Sam flips through the directory and finds Hughes. She wants to see her father's name there, too. She runs down the row of Hughes' names. There were so many Hughes boys killed, names she doesn't know. His name is there. She gazes at it for a moment. Then suddenly her own name leaps out at her. Sam Allen Hughes, PFC, AR, 02 March 49, 02 February 67, Houston, Texas, 14E104. Her heart pounding, she rushes to panel 14E, and after racing her eyes over the string of names for a moment, she locates her own name, Sam A. Hughes. It is the first on a line. It is down low enough to touch. She touches her own name. How odd it feels, as though all the names in America have been used to decorate this wall. Mama is there at her side, clutching Sam's arm, digging in with her fingernails. Mama says, Coming up on this wall all of a sudden and seeing how black it was, it was so awful. But then I came down in it and saw that white carnation blooming out of that crack and it gave me hope. It made me know he's watching over us. She loosens her bird claw grip. Did we lose Emmett? Silently, Sam points to the place where Emmett is studying the names low on a panel. He's sitting there cross-legged in front of the wall and slowly his face bursts into a smile like flames. That is as serviceable a plot summary as I can give to this novel, because the novel is very character-driven. There are a lot of moments and threads that Mason allows to develop organically over the story's time frame, which is most of a summer in this small town of Hopewell. 
The novel's told in the third person, but Sam's obviously the main character as it is from her perspective. And as I said when I introduced her in my synopsis, she's a typical teenage girl who first seems like the type of girl you'd find in a go-nowhere town like Hopewell, but her character develops over time to the point where at the end she realizes that she wants out of that town very, very badly. And I think that's important because so many coming-of-age-in-a-small-town novels are fish-out-of-water stories. That's become so common that it's developed into a bit of cliché. You know what I'm talking about. A novel or movie about a small town where there's a boy or a girl living in it who never quite fits in and knows that he or she is bound for bigger and better things. Sam fits right in. Sam's destined to be all the other kids in that town. And Irene knows that while Sam, while Sam does fit in, her daughter should be bound for bigger and better things that I mentioned. Like, she keeps bugging her about Lexington because she wants to break the cycle. She wants to get her out of the trap that is Hopewell. I briefly mentioned, to illustrate this too, I briefly mentioned Sam's friend Dawn and her pregnancy which is discovered toward the beginning of part two. In fact, Sam takes Dawn to the pharmacy to get a pregnancy test and then they, you know, on peas in the cup and you know all that and they get the results the first time signs you see of sam realizing that she does not want to be hopewell she does not want to be in hopewell or part of hopewell her entire life are throughout this pregnancy subplot she repeatedly mentions abortion to dawn dawn is vehemently against it but at the same time she doesn't know what she wants to do uh, dawn eventually tells sam that she and ken her her boyfriend are going to get a place they'll eventually get married they'll have this kid in other words, she's allowing herself to become trapped in the town forever, at least that's how Sam sees it, and Dawn seems happy about it. Sam's reaction is not exactly joyful. And it's one of the things that adds up to that moment of her realizing what she has to do. The plot with Tom and and this infatuation she has for him over Lonnie, her longtime boyfriend, who they keep asking, you're going to marry Lonnie? You're going to marry Lonnie? That's another indication of that. And... This is where kind of the Vietnam War aspect of the whole novel comes in, too. Because that serves two purposes. First, Emmett and his life, well, his life in pause, served to show how damaged a number of Vietnam vets were after the war, especially in the early 80s. We don't, we don't take PTSD for granted nowadays, per se, but we're certainly more aware of it. And there's certainly more care for it, more advocacy for the people suffering from it. I'd say it's still not enough, but that's a whole other conversation to have. In 1984, this was just coming to light, as was the effects of things like Agent Orange, which is why it keeps getting brought up. You had a number of people who came back from Vietnam who suffered from physical and mental illnesses, and a number of people who also wound up homeless. Emmett, Tom, Jim, Pete, these guys are all scarred in one way or another, and what Mason does is really show this to us by simply showing their everyday lives, how they interact with this with one another and and this curious girl who wants to know more about the war and their experiences and also how they interact with the war who's proud of what who hides from what who's scared of what who is damaged from what they experienced in the war they in one way or another clearly struggle and have different ways of coping and by illustrating that and trusting her audience to make up their own minds about how they're struggling and what's going through their heads Mason just does a superb job of writing here. The second purpose that the Vietnam War serves is in Sam's coming of age. Adolescence, in many cases, is an identity crisis. And Sam's clearly going through one. 
She's struggling with the knowledge that she obviously needs to strike out on her own and be her own person, and she can do that by heading off to Lexington. But she feels that she has an obligation to stay and live with Emmett and be with Lonnie and be with Dawn and everyone else that's in her hometown, because it's what she's known her whole life. Digging into the past of her father is a way of discovering who she is. It's the one thing that sets her apart from everyone around her. It's one of the one great mystery of her life. Who was he? What did he do in the war? How did he die? And what Mason does here is give this girl a natural reaction of finding out that her father in Vietnam, and Vietnam itself was not a war that we normally associate with great heroic feats. Vietnam does not necessarily have a Washington or a Grant or an Eisenhower. The everyday soldier or the grunt is what we must associate with the war and the struggles they faced after coming back are ever present in our minds, especially in 1984 when this book was published. She cannot wrap her head around the images her father's diary puts in her head, and at one point Sam kind of hates her father because this image she was getting of this innocent kid who was sent off to die became more complex than she was ready for. Her reaction, while dramatic, is actually more mature than it seems on the surface. Yes, she's running away. But at the same time, she's trying to experience what he did. Mason's narration during the time when Sam's camping out before Emmett gets there includes a lot of the jargon and the lingo that we've come to expect from the nom notes section from any issue of the comic we've been reading. What that says is that she's trying to understand as opposed to rejecting her father. And that finally brings out something in Emmett, which amounts to really acceptance, which is what you see at the end. The end of this novel, it's very uplifting. Sam's going off on her own. Emmett has actually taken a job. He's going to put himself back together as best as he can. And everyone gets closure, which is something so many people in a situation like that just want. This novel is excellent, both as a coming-of-age story and as a story about Vietnam veterans. Like I said, it's in print and is easily available. I checked it out from my local library, so I'd recommend reading it. Now, on to the film version. God, you missed everything. And you were just a country boy. And you never knew me. It's the summer of 1989. Oh, Sam, I wished your dad had been here to see you. I think he was, ma'am. I felt his eyes on me. And before Sammy can find her future... Wait, we forgot Emmett. Come on, Uncle Emmett. Come get your picture took. This is history. She's got to discover the past. Well, can you tell me how he died? Oh, they don't tell you that, Sam. You ain't never gonna understand it. You don't want to. Well, I want to know about it. I got the right. When I get back to the world, this will be a dream. But now, the world is a dream. Come on, son, you gotta know about Vietnam. Did you get sprayed with Agent Orange over there, Emmett? Why? Something wrong with him? <laughs> I believe my body was entered into by aliens and I was transported. Talk to me, Emmett. There's some things we can't stop thinking about. There's something you ain't never gonna understand. It's Leave just... it alone! Emmett! There's something wrong with me. Like there's this hole in my heart. Like there's just something missing. I can't get it back. In the mind of a girl. 
in the memory of a soldier, in the soul of a nation, the healing has begun. Bruce Willis, Emily Lloyd, in country. The film version really doesn't differ all that much from the novel. Norman Jewison, who in 1989 was coming off the success of Moonstruck in 1987, directed the film, and it made about $3.5 million on an $18 million budget. So it's, it, I guess technically it's a bomb. It, it's not a well-known movie. It stars Bruce Willis as Emmett, Joan Allen as Irene, Emily Lloyd, who is actually an English actress, um, but... And she seemed familiar to me, like I'd seen her in something before, but I, looking at her credits, I couldn't place her. Uh, she plays Sam. Supposedly, Lloyd lived with a, with a family in Kentucky for a while before she started filming the movie so she could get her accent right. And while I don't know that many people from Kentucky, it does sound like she probably did get it right. I mean, to the point where it's actually kind of distracting at times. But overall, she's really, really good at playing this kid. Most of the rest of the cast is not uh, notable, but there are some names you may recognize or some people you may have seen in other things. Uh, Lonnie's played by Kevin Anderson, who would be in Sleeping with the Enemy a few years later. Tom is played by Jen- John Terry, who, if you watch the show Lost, played Jack's father, Christian Shepard. Jim is played by Ken Jenkins, who was on St. Elsewhere for a while and also played Dr. Kelso on Scrubs. Dawn is played by Heidi Swedberg, whose most notable role was that of George Costanza's fiance Susan on Seinfeld. Not much has changed in the movie version of In Country as, as opposed to the book in terms of characters, characterization, or events. The biggest difference has come in how the timeline of some, some of the events has shrunken down a little, which is typical for just about any film adaptation. And Jewison makes this effort to dramatize some of the content in Dwayne's letters and diary entries. The former, not that big of a deal. I found the novel more enjoying because it's being a novel meant that it could have more depth in the film, but the overall story is told pretty well, and it's a pretty tight two-hour movie. The latter, though, the Vietnam flashbacks, are probably the weakest part. And maybe that's because by this point, I'd actually seen a number of different Vietnam movies and television shows that did those scenes better than what Jewison's doing with In Country. It's not a deal-breaker by any means, and... I think that's because despite the movie's flaws, the performances by the individual actors are really good. I mentioned Emily Lloyd. I'll mention her again. She imbues Sam with a youthfulness and naivete at the beginning and does not allow that to be stripped away by the end. One of the things important to the novel and the film is that Sam does not get all hearted and unfeeling as a result of everything she finds out. She certainly has a better understanding of some things, but is She's still a hopeful 17 or 18-year-old kid at the end of the film of the novel and the film, which is realistic. Bruce Willis as Emmett is actually a better choice than I thought it would have been. Willis at this point was coming off the success of Moonlighting on television and had just done Die Hard the previous year and was starting to become one of the most bankable stars in Hollywood. But his performance is a lot more subdued than you'd expect from someone who is beginning to headline blockbusters. There are moments where you can see that he's clearly trying not to chew the scenery too much, especially during a scene set in a thunderstorm where Emmett's having flashbacks. Willis, to his credit, reigns it in pretty well. He also gets the accent, or doesn't 
he doesn't sound like John McClane um, during the movie. He he does his best to do to affect the country accent, which I appreciate it because you know it, it's it's he tries to play the role of Emmett and not just play Bruce Willis. And overall, the film version is good. There are moments where it gets a little schmaltzy, and like I said, the flashbacks don't necessarily work, but Jewison does a serviceable job adapting Mason's novel. I'd recommend renting it, but I'd read the novel first and just see the movie just to see what it what it's like or for what it is. And that is my look at In Country, and that is episode 50 of the podcast. I'll be back in two weeks with a new episode, which will be a look at issue number 45 of the NOM. Until then, thank you for listening, and take care. Hey, little girl, is your daddy home? Did he go and leave you all alone? I got a bad desire. Tell me now, baby, is it good to you? And can it do to you the things that I... You have been listening to In Country, a podcast that covers Marvel Comics' The Nom. The Nom and all of the comics associated with it are copyright Marvel Comics, and since this podcast is intended for entertainment purposes and I make no money off of it, no infringement is intended. Images, clips, and show notes can be found at Pop Culture Affidavit, which is located at popcultureaffidavit.com. Feedback can be sent by email to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. In Country also has a Facebook page, and you can like the podcast at facebook.com slash incountrypodcast. This podcast is a proud member of the Two True Freaks Network of Podcasts, which is a division of the Demanza Corps of Milan, Italy. You can download this podcast and many other great podcasts at twotruefreaks.com. Want to support this and the other Two True Freaks podcasts? Go to twotruefreaks.com and click the Amazon.com link. It costs you no extra money, but really helps us all out. Thank you for listening and come back in two weeks for the next chapter in the saga of The Nom. Woo-hoo!